Welcome to the Talking Immigration Podcast. Immigration is a complex issue. Most of us have strong emotions, but don't actually know the details of how immigration actually works. In this podcast, I interview immigration experts to teach us about the types of immigration, limits, costs, enforcement, and more. I'm Katarina, your host. Let's talk immigration. Welcome back, everyone, and welcome to our guest today, Patrick Torrell, a senior immigration attorney with Clark Hill Law Firm. Most of us, I think, are at least somewhat familiar with the concept of immigrants in a detention center, or we might have heard about them being deported. But have you ever wondered about the process of removal and if or how a person might defend themselves against deportation? That's the topic for our discussion today, and I'm so glad Patrick agreed to join us in this conversation that I hope many of us can learn more about. So welcome, Patrick, and let's go ahead and dive right in. Sounds good. Thank you. When we hear about someone being in removal proceedings or facing deportation, are those the same things, or would you explain what exactly that means when someone's in removal proceedings? Sure. So. I think the short answer is colloquially, yes. Uh, There's a nerdier and more complicated answer, um, as with everything in law and everything in immigration law, as I'm sure you're learning on this podcast. Uh, So I guess to begin, there are lots of different types of removal proceedings. The most common one that people think of is, you know, where you go in front of an immigration judge and you get to kind of make your case and you, you know, maybe have a lawyer with you and we can talk about all the rights later, but it's more like a little trial. Um, That's the sort of most desirable type of removal proceeding to be in of all of the different types of removal proceedings. There are others that are more expeditious where you get a lot less process and those are actually really common. Um, So among the most common is what's called expedited removal Uh, which is what happens at the border and at airports um, when somebody doesn't have uh, entry documents, doesn't have an asylum claim, they can be basically summarily deported without going in front of an immigration judge. Um, It's a a pretty rapid process. There's also um, other types of removals where you don't get to go in front of a judge. One is if you come in on what they call the visa waiver program. So a lot of people who are coming in from places like you know, France and England, they don't need visas to come here for short tourism purposes. And if they overstay their visas, they don't get to go in front of a judge. Uh, they are generally um, subject to this kind of administrative removal process where basically an ICE agent can just order them deported. Then there's also something called reinstatement of removal. Um, Forgive me, Katarina, I told you it was going to get nerdy. This is where people who are present in the United States after having been deported and then illegally re-enter, they don't necessarily get another hearing. There's some exceptions in all of these different cases, but as a general matter, they can just basically be deported on the basis of their prior deportation order. And then there's this one other type of expedited removal for people who have certain serious criminal convictions. And that encompasses kind of the universe of different types of uh, removals. And if you want to get even nerdier, there is, so the term deportation um, is not used in the law anymore. Uh, It kind of got phased out in 1996 when there used to be kind of deportation proceedings, which were proceedings to kick people out of the country who had been let in. 
And there were exclusion proceedings, which were to stop people from coming in who were sort of at the border, you know, knocking on the door. And those types of proceedings, they got consolidated into what are called removal proceedings. And that's the thing that I started with where you're in front of an immigration judge. So forgive me, but when people talk about, you know, somebody facing deportation, you know, usually they mean they have a case in immigration court, um, you know, in front of an immigration judge where they, you know, have some kind, hopefully, of a meaningful opportunity to articulate why they should be allowed to stay here. And I know we're going to get to that later, but that's the, uh, that's the short answer to your question. That's helpful because I think one thing I was wondering about is if people needed to be in a detention center before they were moved, but that, I guess the answer to that would be sometimes and sometimes not. That's right. So a lot of the people that are in immigration court are not in in detention. They are just at liberty. Um, it's possible that at one point they were taken into custody by ICE. Maybe ICE decided uh, not to continue to detain them, just to release them on their own because they didn't pose any kind of threat in ICE's perspective or because they had young children at home or any number of different factors that ICE considers when they decide whether to take somebody into custody. Um, and then you have other people who ICE did take into custody, but who were able to post a bond while their immigration court case moves forward and they get to be released uh, on that basis. Um, and then there's you know smaller subsets of people who get released because they've been held for a really long time and maybe they file a, a petition for writ of habeas corpus in federal court. Now we're getting into some complicated territory and only a small subset of people, but the majority of the people who are in immigration court proceedings. And right now there's over a million. If you look at the immigration court docket, it's a rather astonishing backlog and a shocking number of people that are in immigration court. Um, of those people, the vast majority are not in custody. So, and then, and then you've got like all of those other types of sort of judge-free removal procedures that I talked about before. And oftentimes those people will be in custody when they're going through those. And it's primarily ICE who would make those decisions, whether somebody should be expeditiously removed or released from court or from detention or have access to court. Is that who makes those decisions? Often, yes. ICE and also CBP, Customs and Border Protection. So, I mean, this is a little bit facile, but like you can think of it this way. ICE does interior enforcement and CBP does border enforcement. Um, but it doesn't just mean that CBP is at the northern and southern borders. They're also at airports throughout the country, which are you know port of, ports of entry. Um, but they are the ones that use the expedited removal power that I described before. Um, and ICE does all of the different interior enforcement procedures that, um, that we discussed. So ICE is often the one that's making the call about whether to release somebody who is picked up in the interior of the United States and whom they think is subject to deportation. Are there priorities generally for who should be put into these remo removal proceedings? Like, for example, you mentioned some serious criminal convictions can um, lead to expedited removal. I would maybe assume that immigrants who are here without documentation and who have criminal convictions would be prioritized. And I remember hearing about that being a thing in some of the presidential discussions, but is there legal priorities for that? Or is it sort of like at the whim of CBP and ICE? 
That's a great question. And this is a place where the pendulum kind of swings um, from administration to administration. So in the Obama years, and now again with Biden, um, we are seeing prioritization. We're seeing categories of people whom they think they should be expending limited resources trying to remove. Um, And they have created three categories of people that are presumed to be enforcement priorities. One are very recent entrants. So I think they want to try to send a message that, you know, if you try to come to the United States right now, you know, you're not going to be given any kind of de facto right to stay in the United States. The second category are people who pose a national security uh, or terrorism concern. Uh, And then the third category are people who have certain relatively serious criminal convictions. And that's somewhat similar to Obama's criteria, although that was a little bit broader than, uh, than Biden's criteria. And in the Trump years, there were there was really no guidance on this front. Um, basically, you know, anybody who was here without status or who was subject to removal was amenable to being placed into proceedings. And there was no sort of directive given to the line agents that enforce immigration laws, go after these folks and not these other folks. You know, so, so now we're just sort of kind of adapting to this new world where, where Biden has announced these new priorities. And the real question is going to be, do those priorities actually get implemented on the ground, right? Do, do the agents who work for ICE and for uh, CBP, whenever applicable, do, do they actually apply the guidance that's coming down from above? There was a lot of resistance in the Obama years. And I think uh, advocates in the immigrant rights community is hoping to see that there's a little more accountability that this time around, those priorities are actually adhered to. Besides the moral objective behind that, is there financial incentive to do that? Like, is it expensive to deport people? Or what's the selling point on that? Why, for somebody who thinks, if you're here without documentation, you shouldn't be here, why have priorities? Well, uh, I think the administration would probably first make a kind of fiscal argument that there are limited resources. They don't have enough money to deport everyone. There's upwards of 11 million undocumented people. And so they have to make choices. And why don't they make choices and give directives to their employees that are rational and reasonable? There's a long history of of doing that. Um, That's also not inconsistent with how other law enforcement agencies operate. For example, jaywalking is against the law in, you know, probably every jurisdiction, but you don't usually get stopped and ticketed for that because we want cops to do, um, you know, they got bigger fish to fry, right? Um, and, and we would rather they, they focus on those issues. Um, the moral argument is, is also quite straightforward. I mean, why, why should we be removing from the United States a mom of two young kids um, who doesn't cause any harm, pays taxes, takes care of her U.S. citizen children, whose children may become wards of the state if they stay here and mom is deported. Um, There are lots of sort of good arguments on that front that can be made. And then, you know, the fiscal arguments actually sort of go deeper. It's not just we have limited resources, but also we have positive contributing people in the community that we shouldn't be um, 
we, we shouldn't be uprooting from their lives, from their employers, from from their communities, uh, because the devastation in 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 the wake of that removal is deep. There's trauma. There's 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 tragedy. There's uh, there's an enormous amount of harm that comes with removing a human being from this country. So when we talk about someone who is put into removal proceedings or deportation proceedings, what do we mean when we talk about presenting a defense against removal? That's another great question. So, I mean, the way I kind of like to explain it is that immigration judges decide two questions in, uh, in a case. The first question is, is this person removable, right? Have they done something that subjects them to removal? Are they here without authorization? Are they maybe somebody who was here but overstayed a visa? Are they someone who um, committed a crime that renders them removable? Not all crimes do. Driving without a license, you know, won't render you deportable if you're a green card holder, but you know, something far more serious uh, likely would. The, the the universe of crimes that renders a person removable is quite large and and is kind of increasingly getting larger over time through judicial interpretation. But uh, the first question is, you know, is this person removable? The second question is, okay, if the person's removable, it's not game over. The, the next question is, is there some form of relief that, you know, the person is eligible to apply for that lets them stay here, even though they might be removable? And um, there's a lot of different types of relief from removal. Um, some of the more common ones are what's called cancellation of removal, and there's different types. I mean, now we're getting kind of into the weeds, but basically, like broadly speaking, some are about harm that will happen to you in your home country if you're deported. Things like asylum and protection under something called the Convention Against Torture, which is what it sounds like. It you know it's uh, designed to prevent people from sent, being sent to countries where they're likely to be tortured. But there's also certain forms of relief from removal that focus on harms to uh, U.S. persons, maybe your U.S. citizen children or your spouse or your parents. And then there's some other forms that, you know, are just based on having U.S. citizen or permanent resident uh, family members who can petition for you and allow you to acquire legal status that way. There's, there's a whole bunch of other options, but those are just sort of commonly sought after forms of relief. Does everyone who is in removal proceedings have this opportunity to present a defense or who's able to use this potential process? That's a great question. Well, one problem is that a lot of people in removal proceedings don't have lawyers, right? In immigration court, you have a right to an attorney, but it's not at the government's expense. And a whole lot of people can't afford counsel. And some of these things are complicated to apply for. Now, immigration judges are supposed to investigate whether a person in front of them who doesn't have a lawyer is uh, at least appears eligible for some form of relief and they should notify them and give them an opportunity to apply. You know, you'll be shocked to learn that doesn't always happen. There's some good judges and some bad judges out there. Um, And sometimes people aren't told, um, even when they're appearing by themselves, even when they're children, you know, of, of what they might qualify for. The other impediment is that each of the forms of relief from removal, with one exception, has bars to eligibility. 
um, you know, you, you don't qualify if, um, you know, you might not qualify for this form of relief from removal if you have certain criminal convictions, or if you falsely claim to be a U.S. citizen, or, um, you know, you've committed immigration fraud. There are other forms of relief that uh, you might be barred from if you don't apply early enough uh, after your arrival in the United States. So each different form of relief has its own bars. The one exception is the Convention Against Torture, which reflects a kind of basic commitment to not removing people, no matter what they've done, if they're going to be tortured in, in a foreign country. Backtracking just a tad, anyone who is going to be deported has a court date. Is that correct? Uh, well, no. If Because remember, a whole bunch of people that are subject to deportation don't have a right to go in front of a judge. And if they don't have a right okay. to go in front of a judge um, because they're subject to what they call reinstatement of removal or they're in expedited removal proceedings or something like that, then um, then they might not have a, a court date. Right. So if it's not something where you are already ordered to be removed or it's an expedited removal at the border or you overstayed a visa already, then you would likely have a court case opened. That's right. I mean, let's just take a person who comes to the United States one time, 15 years ago, they come here to work or whatever, they, they stay, they get married, they, they start a life here, they become a member of their community and so on. Uh, if that person gets caught, uh, apprehended by ICE and placed into removal proceedings, they would have the right to go in front of a judge and then they can apply for whatever they might qualify for. Now, in that hypothetical, um, if they have you know, maybe a U.S. citizen spouse or U.S. citizen children and they've been living here for over 10 years, then they can potentially apply for something called cancellation of removal for non-permanent residents. Um, and there may be other options, too, depending on the sort of unique facts of, of that person's case. So can you walk us through kind of how it works, the process, and if there is a standard timeline, how they would present that case? And you mentioned it's most likely that someone would need a lawyer if they can find one or afford one. But can you kind of walk us through that and then some of those potential defenses? I know you kind of went through generally those two types, but maybe a few more examples. Sure. So it is, I mean, it varies wildly. Um, uh, I'll give you maybe a couple of different examples, which I think will illustrate the kind of range of experiences people have in immigration court, but it goes way beyond this. So let's say somebody comes to our southern border and, um, you know, is afraid, you know, that basically they, they've come here seeking safety. Um, maybe they're coming from a, a war-torn place. Let's take, I, I have a number of clients who are from Cameroon, actually, English, uh, the Anglophone region of Cameroon, which is now experiencing basically a civil war. Um, and so they, a number of my clients kind of took this incredible journey to get here, um, you know, coming over three continents, a lot of it on foot. And then they arrive at the Southern border and they present themselves to an immigration officer and say, Hey, can I please apply for asylum in the United States? I'm afraid to go back to my home country. And they'll say, well, let's, let's, exclude the Trump years where they had all kinds of shenanigans at the border. And they've had them for in, including in the Obama years and, uh, and at, at other times. But the normal process, what the, what the law contemplates is they say, okay, come in. You have a sort of quick screening to see whether you have a legitimate asylum claim. If we determine that you do, then you get to go in front of a judge. That's what you win if you pass that initial screening. 
and you can apply for asylum in front of the judge. And in that case, if they're released from custody, um, they would, you know, they're supposed to file an asylum application within one year of their entry uh, into the into the country, and then and then they'll typically have one, maybe two hearings in front of the judge until the the application is filed. And the judge will then see, okay, you've got an application on file. Let me give you a hearing date so you can make your case. Uh, and then the judge would set a hearing date. Sometimes it's a couple of years into the future because of how crowded their docket is I and mean, how full their calendar is. And, uh, and then that person would go to court a couple of years down the road. And if they're lucky and they have a lawyer, they can have a lawyer make the case for them. If not, they have to navigate this morass of asylum law on their own. And, and what do they do in that hearing? Well, they bear the burden in virtually every form of relief from removal. In fact, in all forms of relief from removal, it's the immigrant that bears the burden of proving that they qualify for that relief. So in the case of asylum, this hypothetical Cameroonian is going to have to show that they have a well-founded fear uh, that is a reasonable and objectively reasonable fear of being persecuted if they're sent back to Cameroon. And the persecution has to be because of their race or their religion or their uh, political opinion, membership in a particular social group. So it is, it's hard to, it can be complicated to show that. I mean, particular social group is a term of art that has many, many cases construing what it means. Um, but you just have to show so much to win asylum and an asylum claim. You have to file an actual application and then you have to provide all of the supporting evidence. So, um, if you take a, a hypothetical Cameroonian, you're going to want to prove that they are, in fact, Anglophone, that they are from a region that is, um, you know, experiencing violence consistent with what they say might have happened to them and that caused them to flee. You're going to want to get sworn statements from people who bore witness to any persecution that they experienced. If they were ever um, injured by uh, officials in Cameroon, you would want medical records um, if they have PTSD, you might want to confirm that with a mental health expert. You know, you might want to get an expert who knows all about Cameroon to provide a report that says, yes, uh, someone from this region who describes, you know, these things that have happened to them, that is very plausible for all of these different reasons. Um, you know, they say that they were present at this protest in this location. There was, in fact, a protest at that place. And here's an article from this obscure publication that talks about it. Um, so it's a lot. <laughs> um, that happens in like a four-hour, three-hour, two-hour hearing, depending on how generous your court is in terms of the time that you will be given to make your case. Um, you present the witnesses of your choosing. The judge sometimes will limit your ability to call witnesses because they try to move things expeditiously because of their crowded dockets. And, uh, and then all the while, there's a prosecutor there. There's a lawyer who works for ICE whose job it is, or well, their job should be to do, do justice, and sometimes they do that, but sometimes they uh, try to be sort of nitpicky and find any potential kind of flaw in your case and, um, and exploit it and argue that that flaw should be a reason that you shouldn't be granted the relief that you're seeking. So that's one type. Well, let's take another client. Um, imagine there's a a person who you know came to the United States 15 years ago, like I previously described, uh, who you know gets married and has U.S. citizen children, and maybe one of those kids has special needs. 
Um, and then let's say that person gets arrested for driving without a license, which is not uncommon for undocumented immigrants, because in many states, you can't get a driver's license if you're undocumented. And when you get booked in jail, ICE is there, or they share the information with ICE, and then ICE comes and picks you up and places you into removal proceedings. Um, when you get into those proceedings, uh, if you're lucky to get a lawyer, somebody in that circumstance is a pretty good candidate for what's called cancellation of removal for non-permanent residents, which has a number of different requirements. Among them, you have to have been living here for 10 years before immigration put you into immigration court. And you had to uh, not have certain criminal convictions, have what they call good moral character. And importantly, you have to show that you know a U.S. citizen, parent, spouse, or child or a permanent resident, parent, spouse, or child, would suffer exceptional and extremely unusual hardship if you were deported, which is a really high bar. But for this person that we're contemplating, who's been here for 15 years, just has a driving without a license conviction, and has two U.S. citizen kids, one of which has special needs, um, such a person would probably be a good candidate for cancellation of removal. So what, what do you do? You, you, you know, you prepare, and there's a form you have to file with the immigration court, and then you'll get a final hearing date, just like in the asylum hypothetical I gave you a second ago. And, and then you'll get to that final hearing. And, you know, similar to the asylum case, you have to prove that you meet all of the criteria I mentioned, and, and that you deserve cancellation of removal. There's a sort of like subjective discretionary component to it. And so how are you going to do that? You know, you're probably going to have the applicant, him or herself, testify about how they've lived their life, how what role they play in the lives of their children, and so on. Um, and then you might get a mental health expert to talk about the impact that the parent's removal would have on the children. Um, you would do everything you could to sort of prove that they are just utterly indispensable in the lives of the kids. And if, if you do have this child with special needs, then you're going to want to document that, explain, you know, what condition they have and, and how it impacts their life and what role the parent plays in uh, making sure that the child can meet their basic needs and, you know, get the education they need. And, um, and you know, do they give the child injections or medication? Do they take them to the hospital? Uh, you know, all, all of that stuff comes out. And the lawyer's job is just to really make sure that the record is as sort of robust as possible, that the judge has all of the information before him or her to decide the case, um, and to make sure that, you know, that information is maximally helpful to your client, that it, it humanizes the client in a way that makes clear that they deserve, that they qualify for, and they deserve the benefit. Yeah, so so much of that sounds so subjective to me. Like, I mean, as a parent, I think, gosh, exceptional and unusual hardship would just be losing your mother or father, you know, like yeah. just someone being deported alone, regardless of special circumstances that could be health related or emotionally related. But I guess it needs to be something above and beyond just losing a parent to another country. Well, it needs to be under current law, but query whether that's the law we should have. The law that I was describing, the cancellation law, was enacted in 1996 as part of a major overhaul. And it, earlier I was talking about the, the pendulum swinging from administration to administration. 
the pendulum was not in a good place in 1996. The, the laws that we're living with, which was the last time the immigration laws experienced a, a massive overhaul, um, it was very restrictive and had all kinds of uh, nasty and unintended consequences that I'm sure you'll cover on this and other podcasts. Um, and uh, and that, that was one of them, that this option, um, this cancellation of removal law is so narrow, right? 10 years without getting caught by immigration, which is hard in an era of big data and, um, you know, in this sort of criminal justice dragnet that will get somebody, you know, arrested for something as minor as driving without a license into the deportation pipeline. On top of that, there's only 4,000 people a year that can get 4,000, right? Remember, there's a million plus people in immigration court and only 4,000 people can get this benefit, cancellation of removal each year, Uh, which just shows you how antiquated the laws are that they were drafted at a time when you know, thousands of people were being deported and not hundreds of thousands. And so the types of cancellations of removal, those are limited. Yeah, quite limited. There's a more generous provision for people who are permanent residents and who do something that basically uh, renders them deportable in the language of the law. Like if, uh, if you have a, per- you know, somebody who's got a green card, they're here, they've been living here, but they got arrested for, uh, I don't know, possessing a controlled substance or something like that, then um, then they can apply for something called cancellation of removal, which is not as narrow as the previous cancellation of removal I was just describing for non-permanent residents. But even that is pretty restricted. I mean, like if you have a drug trafficking crime, if you were selling us, you know, selling marijuana, you're out, you can't get it. So um, it's, as I think I mentioned earlier, each of the different forms of relief has their own bars, and it's important to be able to kind of navigate those, know what they are, so that you can advise somebody, look, you can't apply for this, you should instead pursue that. Sure. I think the cap is, it's annoying because it means you maybe have to wait a really long time, and it also sends this signal to judges that this should be sparingly granted um, and only in, you know, really the most compelling cases. And that's not, I, I think, a fair interpretation of it. I think you should give it to anybody who meets the, the criteria under the law. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and, and you shouldn't sort of reserve it for this. I mean, if you were to freeze the numbers in time of people who are being deported in 1996, it's a tiny fraction of the number that are in immigration court now. And so I don't think that we, we should interpret that number as, as uh, informing who should qualify for the benefit, if that makes sense. Sure. If someone does win their defense against removal, does that change their status? Like, are they safe from deportation in the future or what happens? Or is it just like this one time and next week they could be in a removal again? That's a great question. So in, in most cases, they're safe, right? And in, in a lot of cases, you end up with either a green card or an opportunity to get a green card in the future. Um, But there are a lot of people who don't get on that pathway who could potentially be subject to removal down the road. Um, Now, a lot of people in immigration court are applying for asylum, right? We have a refugee crisis south of our border. Um, There's more displaced persons around the world than, you know, I think since World War II. There's enormous amounts of conflict and strife, you know, from Yemen to 
Cameroon to um, Myanmar, you know, um, and of course the Northern Triangle. So a lot of people that are in the immigration court process are are seeking asylum and related forms of protection. Um, asylum, if you get it, you do get on a path to a green card. But asylum has lots of bars, perhaps the most uh, unfair of which is the one-year filing deadline, which basically says you're supposed to apply for asylum within one year of your last arrival to the United States. And if you don't do that and you don't have a good reason uh, to have not done that, then you're out. And instead, all you can apply for are these sort of lesser forms of protection, which are similar to asylum. They're looking forward, right? Like what's going to happen to you when you go back to your home country? Um, but they're not as generous as asylum. And one is called withholding of removal. Another is deferral of removal under the Convention Against Torture. And if you win those latter two types of protection, um, you could actually be back in removal proceedings in the future. And then for anybody, if they you know, win their case, but then they afterwards do something like get convicted of a crime, then they might be subject to being placed into removal proceedings all over again. Last question. Do you know any statistics on how often stays of removal are granted versus how, how often they're sought? Like, what is the percentage of a defense against removal being approved? So the immigration court, the agency that runs the immigration courts, uh, does maintain some statistics on the number of people that are, you know, that succeed in their cases. And if we look back to 2018, it looks like you had about 115,000 people who were ordered removed, but about 23,000 who won relief in immigration court. Uh, and then there's a pretty sizable number who get what's called voluntary departure, which is basically the ability to leave the United States kind of on your own terms without a removal order. Although on your own terms is a little misleading because sometimes you're escorted by ICE but you are leaving without the stain of a deportation order, which is good if you hope to you know, return to the United States. Leaving with a deportation can raise some complications that require you to get waivers and special permission to come back. But so, you know, it's you know, a little less than 20%, basically, of people are, are winning uh, some form of relief in immigration court, according to those statistics. And then actually, interestingly, you know, Syracuse University has this project where they do a lot of FOIA work, Freedom of Information Act work, to try to get records on what's going on in, in the immigration courts. Right. And oh, and I think you had somebody from Track On, didn't you? We did. Great. Okay. And so, yeah, one of the things that they do and, and that I routinely look at are statistics on individual immigration judges. So if I have a client who's assigned to a judge, the first thing I'm looking at is, you know, what is that judge's asylum grant rate? It can be a pretty good indicator of what kind of a judge you've got. Uh, there's all kinds of reasons, and and uh, and tra uh, Syracuse is very clear about this for why there may be wide variation uh, in immigration judge decisions. But you know, it's good to know: do I have a judge who grants forty percent of asylum cases or two percent? Right. <laughs> because um, you know, even though there are good reasons for variation, I don't know if there's any good reason for that degree of variation. But. <laughs> Well, Patrick, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us about how this process works. I know I learned a lot of things that I just didn't know before, and it's just helpful to put things in a bigger perspective. If people want to learn 
more about this or follow you? Where can they where can they get that information? Well, you can follow me on Twitter, although I'm not super active with two little kids and relatively busy job. But um, I often just retweet Aaron Reichland Melnick and Aaron Hall and Andrew Free and some other folks out there. Those would probably be the best places to find me. But but thank you, though, Katarina. I enjoyed speaking with you, and I, I hope I didn't drone on too long. Not at all. Thank you again. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Talking Immigration. If you enjoyed it, please consider sharing with family or friends and leaving a rating or review so more people can learn about this important issue. Have a great week, everyone, and let's keep talking immigration. Immigration.